married uh, at the end of my third year at the U of A. And uh, it was about that time that I began to look at the credits that I had and everything. And I figured out that if I could just take one summer school class and I could take 21 units my last semester in college, I could go ahead and graduate a semester early and actually get out and get a, quote, real job. And uh, so that's what I decided to do. And it was really kind of a challenge because at the time I was working uh, three part-time jobs while I was going to school. And uh, taking 21 units was quite a challenge, obviously. And so as I began to look at my schedule for that last semester, I knew that I needed a couple of easy classes or else I wasn't going to make it probably. And uh, so I found this class called Techniques of Interview or something like that. I don't remember the exact title. And uh, when I got to the first day of class, I realized I'd picked a winner because the professor says, here's what you have to do to pass the class. If you just come to class all the time, I'll give you a C. If you want to get a B, then you have to do that, and you also have to record an interview and turn that in. And if you want to get an A, you have to do that, and then you have to write a paper. So I, I began this semester thinking, I'll do all that. I'll try to do the best that I can, see if I can't get an A in the class. Well, about halfway through the semester, um, I had already secured a job with a large CPA firm. I'd gone through the interview. They'd offered me a job and everything. So I thought, you know, I think it's good enough if I just get a C in this class. And so that's what I did. I just went to class. And that's why I only have the high distinction there rather than highest distinction because that was the only C that I got in, uh, in college. And it was the one that kind of kicked me down. But that's okay. And as, even as I look back today um, on that decision, I think at the right time, under the circumstances, it was probably okay to think that C was good enough in that class because it got me to where I needed to be. But I've come to realize over the years that good enough is not always good enough when it comes to a lot of areas in our life. And that is certainly true in our relationship with God, that good enough is not always good enough. Now, it's easy to understand why we sometimes fall into that trap because there is a sense in which good enough is not good enough and that leads us to a relationship with Jesus, right? Because we realize there's nothing we can do on our own. There's nothing I can do in my own power, my own strength to be right with the Holy God. I just can't do it. And so I have to depend upon Jesus. I have to depend upon what He's done. And so once I've made that decision to follow Christ, it's, it's easy to begin to think, well, that's all there is to it. I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I raised my hand, I did these things, I'm good to go, I'm going to get into heaven. So what difference does it really make how I live my life here on earth? That's just, that's good enough. But we're going to see this morning that, that that's not true at all. As a matter of fact, I would say that that the whole reason that Paul writes this letter that we've been studying, the letter to the church in Thessalonica, is because good enough is not good enough. As a matter of fact, I think that's why he wrote all the letters to the various churches around there. I mean, think about it. Paul could have done like a lot of churches and denominations do today, like, like a lot of these big crusades and rallies do. What do they do? They always want to count the number of people that have made decisions. So Paul could have took out his computer and opened up an Excel spreadsheet and he could have begun to keep track of how many 
converts he had in each one of the cities. He said, well, you know, went to Philippi and we had 150 people there that gave their life to Jesus. And I went to Thessalonica, another 200 there. And, and then we went to Berea and there was 100. And then I went on to Athens and we had 250 there and keep this big, this big spreadsheet. But he doesn't do that. Because as we've talked about, Paul wanted to do more than just make converts. He wanted these people to be growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And to understand that good enough was not good enough. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we continue our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, this series that we're called Living in Light of Eternity. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at the first part of chapter 4 this morning, pick up where we left off last week. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the first 12 verses this morning. Here's what Paul writes. Finally, I love how Paul writes finally, and then he writes two more chapters. Kind of like sermons sometimes, right? We get to finally, and then an hour later we're still going on. But, but he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives, us his Holy, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. I love this. He says, you don't have any need, but I'm going to do it anyway. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting here, as you read this passage, you kind of get this idea that Paul is, is just kind of touching on a bunch of different subjects and at first they don't even seem to be related but as you look at this passage as a whole you begin to realize that there is in fact a unifying theme throughout these 12 verses and the reason that we know that is that Paul kind of bookends this entire passage with two key words or phrases they're ones we find at the beginning and then at the end the first one we see here the first word is the word walk we find it in verse 1, we see it again in verse 12. And it's really interesting because Paul often uses this term to walk, to, to describe what the life of a, a Christian should look like, the life of a disciple of Jesus. And I think he does that for two reasons. There's two important things that that, that indicates. First of all, he's indicating to us that a life as a disciple of Jesus is not a jump, it's a journey. As much as we would like to think that we just make a decision one time and that's all there is to it, he's saying no. He says just like it takes time to walk somewhere, it takes time to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a journey. It's not just a one-time thing. 
And the second thing that that the word walk kind of indicates here is that that um, it takes some effort to do that. If you've ever walked for any kind of distance or gone on a hike, you know that it wears you out over time. It takes effort. And in the church sometimes, I think we've been guilty of using phrases like, you've got, as I've heard this one, let go and let God, right? And there's, there's some truth in that, but part of the problem with a phrase like that is it kind of leads us to believe that, well, all I've got to do is trust in God and then I can just kind of do my own thing and I don't have to put in any effort. I can kind of just float along and God will take me along. But we've seen time after time that that's just not true. We saw in Philippians, he tells us to work out our own salvation. There's, there's effort, there's discipline to be involved in our walk with God. So that's, that's one of the bookends. And then the other bookend we see that's just kind of inside of that, if you were going to look at this as kind of an envelope, is the phrase more and more. He tells us on the front end that we're to please Jesus more and more. And then he gets to the end, he says we're to love our brothers more and more. And this, this phrase is a, it's a, it's a, a great phrase here. It's, it's more than we could even imagine in the English. He's, what he's saying here is that you need to be growing exponentially in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I mean, they were doing some really good things here. But he says it's not enough to just do really good things, that all of us need to be striving to do more and more and more in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, so as we look at this as a whole, here's the big idea that I think that we can get from this passage this morning. And that is this, in my walk with Jesus, good enough, is never good enough. That good enough is never good enough. Like I say, they, they were doing some fantastic things here. They were doing some great things here in their, in their walk with Jesus. But, but it wasn't quite enough. And Paul wanted them to excel even more. That's one of the reasons that we gather here together each week is so that we can together encourage each other to do more and more in our relationship with Jesus Christ. As, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, when we gather here on Sunday mornings, a lot of times it's not because we're going to tell you something new when we pick up God's Word. A lot of times it's like Paul here. Paul says, hey, you guys heard my instructions. You're following them, but I want to remind you of them once again. And sometimes that's all we're doing. We're just reminding you once again of the things that you already know and helping you to put those into practice in your life. I'm reminded here of the words of Mark Twain that I think are really appropriate here. Here's what, what he said. He says, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. I think there's some truth to that. Sometimes we just need someone to come along and to, to encourage us and to help us to, to actually put into practice those things that we already know. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you guys know these things. He says, you're doing a great job. You're making a great influence for the gospel, having a great influence for the gospel there in Macedonia. But I want you to do an even better job. And so he's going to lay out here three aspects of what it means to walk with Jesus. And, and as I mentioned earlier, at first it seems like these things are all unrelated, but we're going to see that they have a common theme to them. So here's the three aspects that he's going to talk about. First of all, in verses 3 through 8, he's talking about holy living. Holy living. And in that section, here's what he's doing. He's telling them that, that 
you need to please God. And that the way that you please God is that you love Him more and more. In fact, that's going to be the the common denominator that's going to tie all this stuff together is that's what we want to do. We want to love more and more. And he says the way that you live holy is you, you love God more and more. Notice here it says that you're to please God. That word to please there is a word that means to, to give pleasure to. And that's what we're to do. We're to live our lives in a way that it gives pleasure to God, that he looks down and sees us living our lives and he says, oh man, that, that just gives me joy and pleasure to see my children living like that. And he says the way that we're to do that is through, is through holy living. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Then the second section here is this, this section about loving others. And what he says here is that we're to love our brothers and sisters more and more. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about the fact that, that it takes a village to raise mature disciples and that what we're to do is we're to love each other more and more. And then finally, he talks about we're to also love outsiders. He can say if we really love outsiders, we're going to live in a way that makes the gospel attractive to them. So I thought a lot about how do we, how do we really do this in our lives? How do we live in a way that, that good enough isn't good enough? And I came up with this whole list of principles that I was going to share with you this morning. And then as I began to look at those more and more, I realized that they all really boil down to just one thing that we need to do. That there's one thing that, that really ties them up. And here's what it is. If I don't want to settle for good enough, I must live in a way that is counter to the culture. I need to live in a way that's counter to the culture. That's what he's talking about here is, is that we need to do that. We live, need to live in a way that's different than all the people around us. And really that's, that's caught up in all three of these aspects of living the life of Christ that, that we've talked about already. You'll notice he begins in this first section where he's talking about holy living, and he, he talks here about the will of God. You know, sometimes we, we, we think that the will of God is something that's really hard to grasp. But you know what? The Bible gives us some things that are the will of God really clearly, and if we would just follow those, we'd probably be well on our way to figuring out the rest of the will of God. And he tells us here, here's the will of God. He says, the will of God is your sanctification. Sanctification is one of those big Christianese words that we tend to use a lot. And if you're using the ESV translation, you'll notice there's a little footnote there that'll say, or holiness. And that's because the root word here is the same root word that's translated holy or holiness throughout the rest of this passage. Now, we tend to think of holiness as being kind of like moral living or, or doing the right thing. And certainly that's an aspect of holiness. But the word itself just means to be set apart, to be different, to be unique. And that's what he's telling them here. You need to be set apart. You need to be unique. Or in the terms that we're using this morning, you need to live in a way that's counter to the culture around you. Now, it's real easy to think that today we live in the worst culture in the history of the world. And granted, it's bad and it's getting worse, right? But do you realize that when Paul writes this letter to the, to the church there in Thessalonica that the culture was not altogether different than the one we live in today? Granted, they didn't have 
phones and they didn't have the internet so they could get on and and look at things that we shouldn't be looking at. But there was rampant sexual immorality going on in that culture as well. Most of the pagan religions included that in their religion. They actually promoted it. So this idea here of, of living in a holy way in which you didn't participate in sexual immorality was totally counter to the culture of their time in the same way that it is today. So they were to be holy. That was going to be different. And, and he uses this word here for sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. We get our word pornography from it. And, and that word, what it does is it describes anything other than a physical relationship between one man and one woman in a marriage relationship for a lifetime. Anything outside that fits into this category. And I don't need to sit here and give you a list of those things. I think you all understand what fits into those categories. And so, so it's, he's saying here that you have to abstain from that. And that's not the only area that we need to live a holy life, but it's certainly one of the most important. And we could spend all our time this morning just talking about nothing more than this, and we don't have time to do that, but here's one thought I do want to leave you with is that these things in our culture that people want to call acts of love, they're really not acts of love at all if they involve sexual immorality. All they are is acts of selfishness. They're acts where men and women are trying to satisfy their own desires. And they're not really love at all because they're not putting the needs of the other person ahead of their own. And so, so we need to understand and to remember that that, 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 that we need to live these holy lives and that that's going to be countercultural. It's also countercultural to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We live in a world that tells us, hey, just go out and get everything you can yourself. And don't, don't worry about it, you know, who you have to run over in the meantime. So this idea of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not a natural thing, but we need to do it. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we need to do it because when we love each other, when we come together in this village, not only do we grow, but we help other people to grow in their relationship with Christ. And we also promote unity within the body of Christ. There's a lady named Rachel Gilson who is... uh, in the leadership team at Crew, Crew's a missionary organization. One of our missionaries that we support, Tom Terry, is part of that group. And she's been part of the leadership group there for a while. And um, she has written a book. And this book talks about how she has lived, her experiences living as a Christian who has a same-sex attraction. And in the book, she's, she's quick to point out that... Um, Through her relationship with Jesus, she has been strengthened so that she's been able to overcome those desires. And I'm happy to report to you that she's been married to her husband, Josh, for 13 years now. And a few weeks ago, I think it was, she did an interview. And in this interview, here's what she said. I think the number one thing that helped me resist acting on my same-sex desires was that I had a community of people who love me and love Jesus. I pray 
that Thornydale Family Church would be that kind of church. That we will be a place where people are free to come, they're free to be transparent, they're free to share their hurts and their struggles, and that we would come alongside them and that we would help them to live a godly life, a life in which they're pursuing God where good enough is not good enough. So he says that, that you have to live in a countercultural way in this holy living. You have to do it in your relationship with insiders. He also says that you have to do it in your relationship with outsiders and the way we act towards the world around us. This guy named uh, Chris Hansen, and, uh, or Colin Hansen, sorry. And he's the vice president of the Gospel Coalition. And back in 2016, before the elections went on, he was invited to Cornell University to speak to a group of college students. And, and he asked those college students this question. He said, when your classmates think about Christians, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And he was shocked at the answer they gave him. And since then, he said he's been to a number of other college campuses, and he's asked the the same question of these people over and over, and over and over again, almost everywhere he's gone, he gets the very same answer. What do you think that answer was? He says, what, when your classmates think about Christianity, what's in their mind? You know what the answer they gave was? Westboro Baptist Church. Westboro Baptist Church. If you guys don't know anything about that, they're, they're not really a church. <laughs> they're a, really kind of a family group in Topeka, Kansas, and they're, they're known for going around to the funerals of servicemen and protesting there and doing it in the most vile and hateful way. Hanson actually called them an or, uh, uh, outgrown family cult in Topeka, Kansas. That's a pretty accurate description. But that's so far from what Paul is teaching here. And I think this is one of those areas where the, the church really has to begin to look within and evaluate itself because is that the way we want to be known in the world around us? Now, Paul is not saying here that we're just to isolate ourselves from the world around us. When he says to live a quiet life and, and to mind your own business and to work hard to provide for your family, he's not saying just isolate yourself. He's not saying go off and, and live in a compound somewhere else with only other Christians where you don't have any influence in the world. He's not saying don't stand up for biblical values in your culture. But here's what I think he is saying. He's saying, don't go out and intentionally provoke confrontation when it's not necessary to do that. We've talked about this before. We, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, yeah, be ready to share your reason for hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. And that's what we need to do. In the article that, that, uh, that he wrote about this, here's, here's what Hansen wrote. He said, for a religion like Christianity that seeks to persuade, perception can dictate reality. Who wants to join a movement known for hatred and bigotry instead of human rights and consent? And yet that's exactly how Christianity comes across to many today when they see crosses held up during the January 6th attacks in Washington, D.C. 
And when they learned the mass shooter in Atlanta on March 16th was raised in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think we need to look deep inside. That's not what we ought to be known for. And we need to look at, at what we're doing as a, as a body, the way that we look towards outsiders. Because the most loving thing we can do is to be a place that's attractive for them, where the gospel is attractive to them. So we do, we need to go about living that quiet life, about minding our own business, about, about working hard so that we can provide for ourselves and not be a burden to other people. At the end of his article, I think Hansen describes some, things, some ways that that might look like. Here's how he, how he finishes his article. He says, but across history and around the world, Christians bring extraordinary change through ordinary means, such as setting another seat at the table, caring for the weak, and suffering with joy because they love their enemies. When Christians obey the truth, they remind us how the West was really one, not mostly through arguments, but through love in close-knit community. Facing today's challenges, we will only move forward together when we get back to the only gospel that saves. No evil can overcome us if we resolve to do nothing but good. I think he's right. And I think that's what Paul is saying here is if we're going to really love other people, we need to do it in that way. So we've seen this morning that in my walk with Jesus, good enough is never good enough. And we've also seen this, that if I don't want to settle for good enough, that I must live in a way that is counter to the culture. So as we close this morning, let me ask us all a question. Here's the question I want to ask. Do I think that my walk with Jesus is good enough? Do I think that I've arrived? Do I think that I know everything that I need to know? Do I think that I'm obeying all that I need to obey? And my prayer is that after we've looked at this passage this morning, that all of you would answer that with a resounding, no, my life is not, my walk is not good enough. There's something that I could do better. So that's really the easy part. I want to ask you a second question, and this is where the rubber really meets the road. What am I going to do about that? And that's going to look different for every single one of us, but I... I, I think that every one of us needs to make some decisions today about what are we going to do about that so that we make sure that good enough is not good enough. Now, that's going to look different for everyone. First of all, there may be some of you out there this morning who have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, and, and you're not even on the journey yet. To get started on the journey, you have to take that first step. As we talked about earlier Good enough is not good enough when it comes to our relationship with God. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do that's going to earn favor with God. There's no way that you can enter into a relationship with the Holy God based on anything that you can do. So you have to rely upon Jesus, and that's the good news. He did everything that was required so that you can enter into a relationship with the Holy God, a personal, intimate relationship. But you have to accept the gift that He's given to you and put your faith in Jesus Christ. So if you've never done that, I want to encourage you. I want to beg you to do that today. But most of us, I know that, especially those in this room, that I know, I know you've already done that. So, so what might that look like for you? Let me just give you a few things to maybe jog your memory here. I'm not going to be able to give you a whole list, but maybe something that will kind of spur you on to think about what do I want to do. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do at the end. I'm going to ask you to pick out one thing that you can do 
to make sure that your relationship with Jesus is better tomorrow than it is today. One practical thing. So let, let me just give you a few things. Let's say that you're, that you're reading your Bible. Let's say you're not reading your Bible regularly. Well, then you need to start do that, right? You can join our, our reading plan that we have. A lot of us are on that plan. It's one that even the kids are on. So if you can read, you can be part of that plan. But let's say you're already doing that. Well, take it to the next step. Maybe you start to memorize some scripture. I know that's a dirty word for a lot of us, but, but it would be something that would be really beneficial for us. Or maybe you just say, hey, I'm going to start engaging in our faith life group and sharing thoughts and asking questions. Some of you guys have been doing that. That's really helpful. How about maybe you just say, you know, I'm not doing great in my prayer life. This is, this is the one, I'll, I'll just be honest, this is the one application I'm taking out of this message this week. I haven't, my prayer life lately hasn't been, I know what it needs to be. So I'm going to make a commitment to do a better job of that. Now I have a, an app called Prayer Mate that I use to help remind me to pray for all the people in this body. And I do, I pray for all the people that are part of this body. But I'd love to be able to pray for you more effectively, but I need you to let me know what you need me to pray for you. So encourage you to do that. Get on the Faith Life group. Share your prayer requests. I sent out an email this week. Share your prayer requests. Pray for the other people in this body. That's something that we could do. Maybe you need to find a place of service here at Thornydale Family Church. Hopefully as things begin to open up and, and we begin to, to revive some of our ministries, we'll have plenty of places for you to serve. We'd love for you to serve somewhere here. Some of you need to change the way you're using your social media. I'll be real honest. I've read some of the things that some of the people in this body have posted, and they are not leading a quiet and gentle life. They're not minding your own business. And, and I'm saying this because this is an area where I've struggled in the past. And I still do. You know what? Sometimes I read a post on Facebook and I'm ready to just jump right in and, and argue with someone. And I've had to just say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to jeopardize my ability to influence people for Christ by what I'm posting on social media. Some of you, maybe you've uh, just been far too dependent on other people. Maybe, frankly, you've just taken advantage of people. You've been lazy, and, and maybe you just need to get out there and work hard and take care of yourself. I don't know what it is, but I'm convinced that everyone has something they can do. Maybe you know what that is right now. I'd encourage you to write it down. If you don't know what it is, go home and pray about it today. I'm pretty sure God will, will impress something upon you there. You know, if there's anyone who should have been able to say at the end of his life that he had arrived, that, that good enough was good enough, it had to be Paul, right? Would you agree with that? In one of the very last letters he wrote, while he was in prison near the end of his life, here's what Paul wrote about that. He said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. My prayer for you is that that would be your testimony as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you don't want us to ever settle for good enough. And I pray this morning that you would speak to each heart. 
I know there's something that all of us can do to walk more closely with Jesus. And I pray that you would show each person at least one practical thing they could do. I especially want to pray for those who have never put their faith in Jesus. And I want to ask, Father, that you would just speak to them and draw them to yourself. We know they can't come to you unless you draw them. So we ask that you would do that today. And for the rest of us, Father, would you just really make this message practical for us? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.